0: Daniel Richter is a professor of American history at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of numerous books, including Facing East from Indian Country. This is Daniel Richter. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Great. Uh, I'm here with Daniel Richter. Uh, Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Uh, So, you've written uh, a number of books on Native American history. one of the more notable uh, books that I, I got really engaged with uh, was Facing East from Indian Country, a uh, fantastic book where you're looking at um, Native American history uh, and the early formation of the country from their perspective. And I was curious why, um, just to sort of start off here, why as a historian, you felt like it was necessary to write this book?
1: Well, there's a lot of ways into that. I guess the first thing I'd want to say is that I've been it's been interesting that I think in a lot of ways, people have misinterpreted what I said I was trying to do in that book. Hmm. I never pretended to be able to write from a Native American perspective in that I am clearly not a Native American person. Right. I did not live in the 17th or 18th century. Um, it would be incredibly pretentious of me to try to say that I could write from a Native American perspective. What I tried to do in that book was to situate myself as, a, as an historian in Indian country, as I said. to um, try to tell this story as if I was a reporter uh, looking at things from the perspective of as best I can reconstruct the Native communities at the time. I think that's a little bit different from saying I can write from a Native American perspective. Yes. Right. And um, so I just uh, that is something that um, maybe I was too subtle in the book. Uh, Maybe it's a it's a complicated message to get across. But I do want to stress that I I don't think I can actually write from Native perspective, but I can try to write early American history as Native American history.
0: I see. Not as
1: something. Excuse me. Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no, I was just curious. Had people given you any uh, guff about that? Because I, I I didn't feel like it was an unclear message. And I, I definitely didn't feel reading it like you were trying to claim to, to speak for these people.
1: No, I don't think I've gotten any particular guff, but it, but it does always. Um, I feel like every time somebody describes the book that way, and you're not alone. I mean, I think that sure. massive numbers of undergraduates who've read that book have said it that way. And I can understand why. But um, I I think that it's, um, and and maybe one of the things I was attempting to do in that book, and you asked me why I wrote it. How many hours do we have for this podcast?
0: (laughs) We can go as long as you want.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, there's a lot of reasons why I wrote it, and and much of it has to do with my uh, thinking as an historian leading up to that point when I wrote that book in 2001. But one of the things I had been doing... as uh, a teacher at that point i was teaching at dickinson college in pennsylvania a wonderful wonderful uh liberal arts college in central pennsylvania in carlisle one of the things i was doing as part of my teaching there was to teach a sophomore course on historical methods for historical for his history majors it was trying to expose them to not only how do you do historical research but how do you think about history right And i didn't exactly write this for those students because i wound up moving on from dickinson college before the book was published but one of the things that was very much on my mind was how do you do this thing of trying to write Native American history or try to write early American history as Native American history, and what are the what are the strategies an historian can use to read sources to try to extract something from those sources that aren't just the point of view of the European invaders who wrote them, and so that book um, actually uh, in each chapter. It tries to illustrate a different way of doing that. How do we read early accounts of encounters between uh, Europeans and uh, native peoples? And how do we try to at least imagine what those sorts of things might have meant uh, from a native point of view? You know, What are the things we can pick up from those stories that don't jibe with European stories? And that might tell us something about how native people looked at those events. Uh, I have another chapter that deals mostly with material goods and material culture, things like glass beads and copper kettles that were so important to the trade between early Europeans and uh, Native Americans. And what that might tell us, if again, if we situate ourselves in Native American country, to think about um, the meanings of those goods and what people did with them and how important that was to people's economics and to their culture and their societies, Uh, Another one tries to look at, um, you know, how Europeans recorded long speeches or long stories by Native Americans, right? And those are really problematic sources. I mean, you know, it's written by somebody who doesn't necessarily understand the language well. It's written by somebody who's um, certainly got their own agenda, usually trying to make Native people look either harmless or fully under the control of Europeans. But I do think there are ways that uh, literary scholars and others have taught us that we can, as, as a number of people say, you know, read against the grain, pry that material open and try to look for things that uh, that don't easily fit into European narratives and it might give us a, a hint of how um, uh, Native people were experiencing those, those events, right? So each chapter tries to take a different sort of methodological take here, right? And so one of my things about this book was that and why I called it "Facing East from Indian Country" um, was to try to talk about, you know, how, as an historian, can we do that?
0: I see. I, um, I'm uh, sorry. I'm, I'm curious, and I genuinely don't know the answer to this question. It is um, do Native Americans do they uh, embrace the term "Indian" at, at this point, or do they? That really is
1: quickly? that is an extremely uh, fraught question, and one that. Um, uh, I would, would probably want to leave to my indigenous friends to, to answer definitively. Sure. I can say though that uh, all those words, although they're contested, they are used by Native people. Uh, the most uh, widely circulated Native American newspaper in this country is called Indian Country Today. Okay, right? Um, and actually um, uh, one of my um, uh, one of my Native American historian colleagues, uh, a woman who is native, it's actually been trying to figure out what the meanings of those terms are for contemporary people today. Uh, and, and often, you know, native people have been called Indian for almost 500 years. Yeah. And that constructs a certain category of, uh, of experience, right? If you're lumped together with all these other people as Indians by the colonizers, that actually creates a certain category that people have to deal with sometimes. Right. Right. And in, uh, particularly in the United States, there's a legal category that is called Indian. Yeah. Right. And that is not how people, how most people see their core identity. Again, I can't speak for, for those people themselves, but they are, but it is an identity they have to deal with. Right. Right. Uh, And so um, maybe uh, 20 years ago when I was writing this book, I would have thought I should have, I didn't think quite as much about using that term as I might today. But uh, indigenous, all of these things, as as the historian Colin Cowley once said, we should need to treat those terms as adjectives, not as nouns, right? And that they implicitly describe the noun which is people
0: I see, yeah.
1: Right. Uh, And most of the times those people would rather call themselves Haudenosaunee uh, or Onondaga or Cherokee uh, or maybe even something even more local than that. Um, But they also inhabit a world in which they are labeled as Indians uh, constantly, in the United States anyway. And uh, so in some respects, using that term as long as you use it very carefully and use it in understanding it's an adjective, I think, is one that um, uh, is is useful as an historical term, if not as a. And uh, and again, to get back to this idea of facing east from Indian country. Right. This is the country that is labeled by Europeans Indian right? Um, and is uh, also as as one is trying to think about the collectivity of native peoples within what becomes the United States. Right. what is that broader term that describes those people who are dealing with the particular kind of colonialism uh, that the united states government imposes upon them and again i just want to say uh as um as a um a, a non-native person i don't want to weigh in definitively on this but i do say that um, uh, there is uh, i think there are a lot of ways in which you can think about these terms uh, that are um, not uh, that are ones that can be used situationally and historically but not Necessarily and uh, not necessarily to describe a person's core identity.
0: I hear you. Um, so let, let, let's get into the the content of the book, then, shall we? Um, I'm curious when, you know, I, I remember this is obviously a, a, you know, a different set of Indigenous people entirely. But I remember one of the images from, I guess I, I must have been, you know, middle school or elementary school when I saw Apocalypto for the first time and that eerie image when they at the end of the movie, uh, they look out and they see the sh- the ships coming to shore, and it's these colonizers, and it's it's um, it's very foreboding as, as in terms of an ending. And I'm curious that that's something that uh, you know has stuck in my mind, but I don't know if that's how uh, settlers were received in the beginning. And as you mentioned in the book, a lot of for the most part in the very beginning a lot of most natives did not see settlers. They just heard these rumors of these people who had come Mm -hmm. on. Um, So what was the general tenor of those rumors? Like, were people, uh, weary, were, were they curious? I mean, probably a lot of emotions, but what was going on?
1: Well, again, I think a lot of different emotions and, uh, and we can only kind of try to uh, reconstitute bits and pieces of that. Um, I think, first off, is there any particular reason why um, indigenous people who are living, um, uh, living their ordinary lives have many concerns all over the place, um, are concerned perhaps of uh, where the next meal is coming from, more likely they're concerned about their, indigenous enemies who live across the hill, right? Or they're thinking about all kinds of things. Um, You know, let's think about what uh, European sailors must have looked like after two to three months on the ocean. Hmm. They stank. Their um, clothes were probably ragged. Maybe the captain dragged out his dress uniform to put on a good appearance when when he arrived, Uh, They do look very strange because, again, after three months in the ocean, no one had shaved. Um, And like you and I, they would have a beard, but a much more scraggly one. And would not necessarily look like people that we normally encounter. Right. Um, I don't think that they would have seen white skin. What they would have seen seen was very sunburned skins. I think that's something that comes much later. Right. Um, And they are on these big ships, which don't, which probably look largely like like just very big canoes, because many, particularly indigenous people who live near the seashore, actually knew about sails and all kinds of things like that, right? So first off, I guess the first thing is to say what makes them a threat.
0: Well, there's, <laughs> it, it, I hear what you're saying, um, and, and in some ways it feels like, um, yeah. it, it it feels like. An understandable uh reaction to not view them as a threat um and it it almost feels like one of those black swan events that people don't quite realize the impact it's gonna have Mm -hmm. um i mean and and obviously we're speaking with the benefit of hindsight but was Mm -hmm. is there no record of anyone saying uh or maybe not immediately once they land on shore but within a year or two of saying you know maybe these people are trouble
1: well I, I think absolutely uh, people start saying that, and they might think they're well again I, I think that are they a threat or are they uh, not are they a, something that's potentially worth are dealing with or ignoring um, you know I, I again uh, also there was well, there's two kinds of historical experience at work here I think as well for Native people right? One is if you're at, in a place like Cape Cod in the early 17th century, um, there had been a long historical experience of dealing with, with uh, Europeans visitors, probably back to the early or the mid 16th century at least. Uh, French fisher folk had been there. There had been some trade, there'd been all kinds of things going on. Again, very diverse interactions. Um, One of the things to keep in mind is, you know, every European who shows up thinks they're the first person who's ever been there. Right. Right. (laughs) But they're not. Uh, There is a first person who was there at some point, but usually it's not the European who thinks he's, he's, and I do say he, uh, is the first person there. Right. Uh, But also, you know, that experience builds up over time and people have begun to have an expectation. Okay, maybe I can trade uh, some beaver skins for... Uh, some uh, metal tools and metal weapons. And you see, for instance, when Henry Hudson arrives uh, in, in, in what comes to be known as the Hudson River, um, he goes up the river and uh, they, they seem only semi surprised that um, Munsee people come running out with furs to trade right away as soon as they see, see the ship. Right. Uh, that's that's a product of their experience of seeing a lot of other people at some time. They're, they're not recorded in European history. But the other thing, of course, that happens is that people get captured. Right. Europeans steal folk, steal native people. Right. And use them. Sometimes they're kind of forced translators to teach the language to Europeans. Sometimes it's just plain trying to sell them into slavery. This happened to the man who comes down to us in New England history by the name Squanto was actually captured by an English uh, um, sea captain named Hunt, who took him and about about another 10 or a dozen um, Wampanoag people uh, to Spain and tried to sell them as slaves. Squanto then probably was bought out of slavery by some Spanish um, priests, but it's not clear exactly what happened. We don't know what happened to him. Then he found his way to England. He learned how to speak English. He found his way back to New England. Uh, and he is one of two native people who walk out to the Puritans after they've been there starving for almost a year and say, hello, guys, in English, right? Uh, so there's a historical experience there. And by that time, one of the Wapanops certainly knew the English as being slave stealers, mm. right? Yeah. And had every reason to fear these folks, but also had an experience of uh, the, perhaps the advantage of trade with them and how they might be valuable allies against their enemies. So again, uh, the... The, I think asking the question of what do they think when they first show up is a little bit of a false question. Now, I said there's two historical experiences. One is the experience of you know, trading, slave raiding, uh, killing each other, perhaps even putting together the pieces that disease shows up shortly after Europeans show up, right? Uh, the other is most of what we have in native oral traditions about these first contacts comes from a century or maybe even two centuries later. Stories recalling, um, perhaps uh, stories about big floating islands showing up with strange godlike creatures, or at least not human creatures uh, on board. Um, Stories that that do draw a moral from this. And that clearly say these were people who are powerful and we need to be aware of and all these kinds of things. But that's also, that's a historical story told long afterwards. through the Story of native uh, ways of understanding their own past and their own significant events, right? And so I'm always weary when I read accounts that say when the Europeans showed up, native people thought they were gods.
0: Right,
1: right. Well, I think that uh, that first off, what is a god to a native person, right? And uh, native people in Eastern North America talked about various kinds of other than human people who have powers. Some of them different from Europe from here human people. Some of them not, right? Um, and uh, but but then you could also talk about any person, whether they're human or not, as having these kinds of powers and these kinds of um, and so, so, all these things, you know, there are problems of translation, they are problems of historical understanding, there are problems of, of how um, descendant peoples uh, make sense of their own ancestors' choices and decisions, and all of which is not answering your question except to say there's no easy answers to these questions. And, um, and first off, that, um, I mean, th- there, is, there is no particular Reason we should assume that all native people, when they saw the early Europeans in these early periods, necessarily saw them as an existential threat. Yeah, might have been dangerous. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but uh, why should uh, forty-five or fifty scraggly, starving, stinking, disheveled people on a ship even if they have guns that make a lot of noise why should where they should they be seen as an existential threat to our way of life
0: yeah and, and, and it is it, it makes total sense um, why they would not view view settlers uh, initially as an existential threat it, it does also
1: first i should also say i'm starting to interrupt i'm Wait. terrible about this um did they necessarily see them as settlers and what does that mean
0: Sure. Yeah. I. I mean. It. So did they? I mean, they. They did arrive and and basically settle in the country. But I. I. The Native Americans had a different concept of property ownership uh, and especially of land. Yeah, they did. So they did. did
1: but uh, but of course, again, getting back to the what I was describing about those early encounters, uh, most of those early account encounters are with military men, fishermen. Um, explorer men <laughs> right. uh, who are actually not there to settle. Yeah. They're there to scout out the country. They're there to trade. They're maybe there to capture some slaves they're there for all sorts of reasons. Um, fisher folk fishermen might set up a camp over the winter uh, to guard a particular spot where they're going to drive their fish when the fleet comes back. But uh, again, it's, it's, It's not immediately clear, and at least it's certainly not clear for the areas the English colonized until probably sometime around 1620 or 1630 that it's clear these people are not here just as a handful of folks to set up a training post or to set up a fishing camp or to set up a fort to defend themselves against the Spanish or us, right? Uh, But they're really after our land, and that, 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 that comes considerably late in the process, right?
0: At that point, once they did become settlers, did w- w- were they seen as taking native land or uh, w- was there some kind of shared arrangement of saying like, hey, you can be here? Was it unoccupied on any level or h- how did that work?
1: Well, again, very complicated and something that's different in different times and different places. But. um. um There's a lot of examples early on in the the early 17th century where native chiefs make an arrangement that does, in fact, say, yes, you can build your houses and your fort on this particular piece of land, uh, which belongs to our community collectively, and we have collectively decided you can live there. Okay. Uh, Famously, Powhatan, the... um, Paramount chief in what the English called Virginia tried to get the English to move from Jamestown. He says, Here, I've got a much better place for you to live up the river here. Go move there and we'll protect you and that'll be fine. Right. Jamestown and die for some reason, but in any event. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Massasoit or, or quicken in the in, uh, in, uh, in Wampanoag country uh, did something similar with the Pilgrims. Right? And, now, and, and that's something that seems to fit in Native tradition, right? You, uh, people show up as um, visitors or emigres or people who want to join your community or people who, um, you know, there's a lot of advantages to having uh, uh, exclusive access to people nearby who can sell you metal tools, right? Yeah. Um, and usually, um, again, the, the difference that's usually described between Indigenous understands of property and European understands of property is that indigenous people talked about use rights, not simply possession. So I think it it is often the case that when native people give that kind of permission, they mean you have a right to live there. That doesn't mean you get to do, that we can't hunt there as well, or we can't fish there as well. You have the right to live there. You have a right maybe to plant some crops, right? Uh, We'll plant our crops over here in our village. You can plant your crops there in your village, right? But the assumption is that that's a matter of the right to use the land, not to just have it forever.
0: right?
1: Not necessarily to exclude other people from using it for other things. And it's also an ongoing relationship that involves uh, what we call reciprocity back and forth. You're supposed to acknowledge actually that that land actually does belong to the Wampanoags and you're living there on their permission. That requires probably paying, well, paying is not necessarily a word for it, but annual gifts of tribute, right? To recognize that relationship. Uh, this is the origin of that really ugly racist European term, Indian giving. Right? As Europeans think they've given us this land forever, but what they expect is that every year you got to renew that relationship.
0: I see. Yeah.
1: Right. Uh, which shouldn't have been all that unfamiliar to Europeans who lived in a world where there were still great lords of the manor who expected people to pay them quit rents every year to acknowledge their ownership of the land. Right. Um, and in fact, I don't think I, I think the idea that Europeans rejected this was, in fact, um, one of their early. Uh, proto-racist assumptions that uh, their rules didn't apply to these native people whose recognition of the land rights was not something to be recognized right um, but in any event um, so I think that's that's the early and then of course once um, larger and larger numbers of Europeans start showing up and start not just imposing their ways of using the land, their understandings of property ownership uh, on the landscape, but also we're increasingly coming to understand bringing their agricultural animals with them. Uh, particularly pigs. And um, uh, the great thing about a pig, if you're an early colonist is you just let it loose in the forest and let it run around and just feed itself. Right. And then maybe you round them up once a year, or you round up a pig every once in a while, you probably notch their ear to show it belongs to you personally. Right. But what are those pigs when they're out in the woods doing? They're eating everything in their path. They're destroying the food for deer, for instance, which might otherwise be hunting. Uh, Also, pigs tend to get into native cornfields and rip up the cornfields, eat up the the crops, right? So uh, as uh, the historian Virginia Anderson once said, these pigs are like creatures of empire, They're out there conquering the land for the colonizers uh, because they're also a way of using the land that is not compatible with native use of the land. Native people see, you know, there's areas where we hunt deer or where we hunt fowl or turkeys or whatever. Right. And those areas have been taken over by European pigs. Right. A real threat to, to, to um, uh, the, the, again, the, not only the territorial in- integrity but the economic life of, of native people so again this is where uh, by the 1630s in some places by the 1620s and others and certainly by the 1670s or 80s um, native people are fighting back and realizing the real threat that that your, the english settlers uh, 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 present to their way of life
0: yeah and, and you do uh in the book outline sort of like These three disruptors in the 17th century. And one of of those he mentioned is the uh, disruption to the natural environment that uh, settlers had. And and we Mm talked about that just a little bit now. And the other two I I also want to go into, which uh, was trade, uh, the effect on trade and sort of the the new goods that were being imported. Mm -hmm. So, disease and how big of a deal that was. Um, Maybe let's start with disease. I mean, we talk about. Uh, the bubonic plague in Europe, and the effects it had on the population there. Um, But horrible devastation within Native American communities, uh, in terms of the spread of disease. I've always been curious, is there is there a reason why there was no, why this was not a two way street? I mean, if the two populations, European and Native American had not interacted before, why weren't Europeans getting sick? Do we know?
1: Uh, well, they were getting sick of one particular disease, which is syphilis, which seems to have come from the Americas, <laughs> But that uh, doesn't have quite the, the same impact as smallpox and measles and all the rest. Um, of course, it's also worth remembering that when Europeans went to Africa, the disease vectors went the opposite way. Hmm. Um, but the uh, the answer that epidemiologists would give is that and 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 this probably resonates pretty well today as we're still dealing as we're still dealing with covid right that viral diseases evolved uh, in, on the three continents of europe asia and africa which had long been interconnected and they evolved in ways that um uh, that uh, probably involved animal to human transmission of disease. Again, the kind of things we're talking about now with COVID. Right. But it had uh, happened um, as best we can determine, most of these diseases probably evolved back in the time of the Roman Empire, and may have had something to do with the collapse of the Roman Empire. In any event, European civilizations had uh, had a long, long history with these viruses. And that doesn't mean that people were genetically predisposed to not get sick. It doesn't have anything to do with them, their social patterns and such, but that most of these diseases actually were what we used to call before the age of vaccines, childhood diseases. Hmm. Most children would get them. Many children died, but most survived. And by the time people became adults, they were they had immunity to these diseases because they'd had them as children been exposed to them and what, and what have you. Right. Um, and again, I'm, uh, I'm no epidemiologist. In fact, most of what I read about epidemiology was quite a long time ago. And, I, and I, I haven't kept up except to read, as we all have, about COVID and hope you understand about how these things happen today. But um, the short story is uh, that Europeans. Um, Um, had um, basically um, come to a a situation of a truce with these viruses, right? And not because of it, it probably has very little to do with anything that's genetic, just the fact that people were exposed to them as children, and the adult population was generally immune. I see. Or if they weren't generally immune when they got it, it was a relatively mild case.
0: And, And in terms of percentages of the population... Uh, of the native population that died due to these diseases. Um, over the course of the 17th, and maybe we can throw in the 18th century as well, do we, do we have, um, is, is there an obvious answer to that or is it up for debate?
1: I'm sorry, Duncan, the Skype broke up there.
0: No worries. Um, I, I was just saying in terms of percentage of the native population uh, that died due to these diseases, do we know um, exactly the answer to that, or, or is it, are, are there some, you know, questionable cases? I mean, I'm sure this is all based on evidence, uh, or sorry, estimates rather, um, but roughly how much the population um, died because of these?
1: Well, it, I, I think the scholars were more confident of the answer uh, 20 years ago when I wrote Facing East, and perhaps they are today, Uh, The figure that was then thrown around was maybe 90% of the population over a 100-year period uh, died from these diseases. I think we now understand that it was probably a lot more localized and patchy and spotty than that, right? Um, And we're also understanding that there's a lot more social factors that go along with this. An economic and social position to nurse people back to health how much of that disease is occurring during the periods of warfare between Europeans and native peoples? How much of that is occurring in a period of all kinds of colonial pressures, which are leading people to be impoverished, uh, to not be in very good health anyway, when these uh, epidemics happen? Um, so I think we're, uh, um, as with a lot of things, uh, the situation is looking a lot more complicated than it used to, but I still think it's, it's, it's undeniable Uh, that uh, the impact of these epidemics on Native communities is enormous. It is um, an extraordinarily devastating event. And in some respects, the most um, impressive uh, part of the story is that somehow Native people survive and are able to recombine their communities and are able to put things back together under all the enormous pressures of colonialism um, to, uh, you know, reconstitute their communities and um, uh, revitalize their communities under uh, this enormous uh, biological threat of, um, of um, smallpox, measles, chickenpox, uh, often all hitting at the same time. Um, And um, uh, in any event, I think we're, uh, we're less confident than we used to be about a certain percentage figure, which as you say, always depends on estimates and depends on, probably lack of European sources to tell us what the baseline was before the epidemics hit, right? And we certainly can know that in particular cases, I mean, there are documented cases of the enormous impact that a disease would have the Jesuit missionaries and um, uh, record these epidemics in particular villages at particular times in enormous detail. Uh, there are early accounts from New England that also talk about how horrible the smallpox epidemics were. Uh, what we are less confident in is, you know, just how widespread were those epidemics? When were they pandemics? When were they local outbreaks? Um, and exactly, um, you know, how many people survived a particular epidemic is, is something again that of that we'll probably never know the the uh, the firm answers to. But nonetheless, there's no doubt that this is a huge um, uh, factor, and uh, in, in, as um, as uh, some people have said, that the, main, um, the main feature of Native life in the 17th century, anyway, is death.
0: Yeah, that is so crazy. W- were there any um, sort of accounts at the time? I mean, I, I know we're dealing with a, a lot of oral history and, uh, as mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, uh, like European transcription of uh, Native American speeches. Um, but were there any accounts at the time from any from anyone? Of people being like, oh my God, look at the devastation going on right now.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, There's a famous quote from early New England, and I wish I had them I can't come up with the person's name uh, right off my hat, but um, uh, he talks about uh, traveling around the countryside and seeing unburied bones everywhere. Jeez. And he describes this as a newfound Golgotha, referring to the hill of the skulls where. Jesus was supposedly crucified, right? Um, we have uh, very graphic accounts of just, um, you know, the, how incredibly horrible um, the um, effects of smallpox were on people, from uh, both from uh, English New Englanders and, as I said before, from the Jesuits, from um, uh, other written accounts from all over the Americas. Um, uh, certainly, it's... Um, You know, there's no doubt about the 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 terror that this disease um, uh, invoked, and uh, the the crisis that it proposed that it that it posed for native um, uh, particular native communities at particular times.
0: And and you said, um, you know, one of the central facts of Native American life in the 17th century was death. There was also this disruption to trade that you talk about in the book where you have a lot of new tools being introduced uh, that change really like the the basic building blocks of life. Like even things like how to start a fire uh, was made much simpler. And I guess this ties into the fact that uh, on a certain level, uh, the arrival of Europeans was seen uh, as a potential advantage. Um, There there was trade, of course, before European settlers. Um, How was it... um, how was it impacted with the arrival of Europeans? Was it mostly in the form of these new goods that uh, that came on shore?
1: Uh, new goods, and and again, um, I those goods I don't think should be seen. Uh, they they certainly cause enormous cultural transformation, but I don't think we should see them necessarily as um, somehow destroying native cultures. I think that. It, at least in the short run, I think they're seen as enriching Native cultures. And we can certainly see that Native people are using those goods in ways that are very much rooted in their own traditions. Um, They use copper pots first as sources of raw metal. In fact, the early copper pots seem to have mostly cut up to make um, cutting tools, uh, arrowheads, all kinds of other things. But then once the copper pots become more um, um, plentiful, uh, they're used in the same way that ceramic pots used to be used, right? But they're just new and improved versions of those things. Um, glass beads, uh, shell beads, all these things fit well into Native um, aesthetics and Native understandings of, uh, in many respects, the, the sort of uh, sacred goods that go along with, with religious life, right? Uh, those things just become, they become, uh, you know, sources of cultural efflorescence, right? Uh, once you have iron tools, you can make much better and much more detailed uh, carvings on, uh, say, animal bone, right? Right. There, there's all kinds of things that there's there's no reason to see any This this. Um, I like to say, you know, have have Americans become less Americans because we all buy Japanese TVs now, right? Or Korean TVs, right? <laughs> Some would argue that we have. Uh, some would argue that we have, but but it's certainly not because we suddenly become Koreans. Um, right? uh, white White Americans have become. But in fact, you know, it's fitting into these existing patterns. Right. We already knew what to do with TVs. Right. Um, and these are just new and better ones. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is there are lots there are lots of spin-off effects, again, that who would necessarily see this as. You'd have to be an, an enormous genius to figure out that there's going to be trouble down the, down the road, right? Uh, but, of course, once everybody thinks they need copper pots, uh, the skill in making clay pots perhaps declines, although we may have overestimated that. But nonetheless, you need socially and economically, what you have to trade for them, which is usually furs and animal hides of one sort or another, right? So more and more of men's life needs to be devoted to hunting and not hunting for food, but hunting for commodities that are going to be traded on the global market, right? And this begins to really, again, change the economic basis of people's lives, right? in ways that start off as being maybe relatively not so disruptive, but over time, you know, the economy is devoted to extracting these particular commodities and putting them in the world market, uh, which ultimately, again, a long way down the road makes native people dependent on that trade and robs them of their ability to support themselves. Uh, the other thing, of course, that's important about these trade goods is that many of them are turned into weapons. Right. To be used in warfare against other native people or against other Europeans. Right. Um, and this begins with um metal arrowheads, which are um, I think we tend to forget how much superior they were to stone arrowheads. They're much lighter, they fly farther. Um Indigenous peoples in Eastern North America had developed perfectly good armor made out of wood to defend themselves against uh, stone arrowheads. A copper arrowhead just goes right through that. Right. Uh, also flies faster and straighter. Uh, and then, of course, once firearms become part of the mix, uh, then you've got an arms race that's going on. That's really quite, um, uh, quite devastating for all people in concern. So, um Again, I think that, um, and again, who, who could be blamed for saying, or if we, if we can only get a hold of a few of those guns, yeah. we're going to be in a great position, right?
0: Yeah. You, you, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Do you know the historian Tamim Ansari?
1: Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know.
0: Okay, that's fine. Um, he, uh, he, he has written books about uh, like, uh, the history of like the Islamic empire yeah. and stuff like that. And um, one of the things that he talked about was that, um, you know, within the Islamic world, they'd already invented the steam engine. So the Chinese, but they didn't use it um, like the Europeans Uh did because they already had all these artisans making goods. And so they didn't really feel a need to um, to sort of mass produce things on that level. Um, And China had the same thing where they had this huge amount of labor where they didn't need really to. Uh, create all these factories to, to get that done because they could just throw human bodies at it, basically. And um, however, once the steam engine took off in Europe and the Industrial Revolution started pumping away and um, they started trading with the Europeans and getting all these goods, they realized, oh, we really want this stuff. And they didn't have the same cultural legacy that the, the Industrial Revolution uh, in Europe had surrounding it, like this culture of individualism and all this. And it, it wound up trying to integrate like the end products, the material goods without the sort of web of culture that went around it. And it still to this mm-hmm. day has these weird sort of side effects. And it's just fascinating to see that e- even in, you know, Native American country, same similar deal of like, we, we like these goods, you know, we're not, Certainly, different cultures, and I don't know. It almost seems like a sort of a weird poison fruit to uh, to be accepting.
1: It's a poison fruit, but one again, I think um, I, I would. Uh, I'm eager to read this book, and so I hope you'll send me the reference after. Sure, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, um, but I would say instead of saying they lack uh, the cultural web that goes around these goods. I would say they're incorporating into a different cultural web. Sure. Right. Um, and uh, oh, by the way, was the Industrial Revolution an unambiguous good thing for Europeans? Right. Yeah. <laughs> was the invention of the cannon a good thing for Europeans? Right. Uh, so um, again, these are these are poison fruits, but they're poison fruits that are grafted onto again a different cultural tree. Right. Yeah. And um, actually one of my, one thing I like to at least ask people to think about with regard to firearms in particular, right? Uh, And the historian David Silverman has particularly written about this, is that uh, native people incorporated firearms in very particular ways. They didn't just buy any gun. In fact, they're pushing these European firearms traders to send them what were today the most advanced weapons in the 17th century which were flintlock muskets. Um, most European armies are still using what are known as matchlock muskets. And I don't know, I'm probably losing some of your audience here. Oh, no, no, not at the all. The matchlock, you had to carry around this lit fuse and stick it into the gunpowder oh, to wow. make the gun fire. Yeah. And the gun was usually really heavy. You had to prop it up with a stick to shoot it. <laughs> um, when they invented the flintlock, this is, again, it's a it's a piece of, and a piece of steel, the same thing that made it easier to start a fire, right? Um, And all you have to do is pull the trigger and it ignites the powder in the pan and then makes the gun fire, right? Um, And uh this is, this is exactly, you know, this is what, uh, you know, indigenous customers wanted. They weren't, they were not uninterested at all in matchlock muskets, right? Um, they wanted the, they wanted the flintlocks uh, and they wanted them to be easily transportable. Nothing, none of this put it up on a stick and make it fire, right? You have to be able to shoulder it and shoot it, right? And so they were pushing European, um, uh, they, they wanted, most of what they were buying were in, in many respects, right at the cutting edge of gun, gun technology in particular, making barrels with the thinnest possible um, barrels to make them lightweight and easy to transport, which is also why those guns blew up pretty often, right? Yeah. Um, but again, they're, 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 they have a particular, um, a particular um, I hate to say consumer taste in these things, but they have particular demands, which is true for almost everything they bought from Europeans, right? Um, but we're known, what is known as duffel cloth, which is a kind of a, it's kind of like a denim a very heavy woolen cloth but uh this was what uh, indigenous customers wanted in eastern north america and they wanted particular colors and i've come across uh really very interesting letters from uh people who uh european people who trade with um uh, native people in like place like albany new york and they're writing back to the them what you, <laughs> they've got to be this particular shade of blue with this particular, you know. And so, uh, again, I, I, I really don't want to convey an, an image that they're just buying any junk that's being sold to them. Right. There's a particular cultural redefined way of thinking about uh, these European goods that are very much. Um, again, rooted in, in Native traditions, uh, and that doesn't mean they're good things necessarily, because there's always there's always a cost to something. Um, but, um, again, in any event, the, um, uh, in terms of firearms, weapons, everything else, these are things that are uh, very much uh, being rooted in, in Native traditions, uh, not just a kind of um, mindless adopt, adoption of European uh, technology.
0: Yeah, and, and we talked about the, the arms race that was going on, and one of sort of the, um, the events that seems to uh, th- this conflict... Uh, Between settler and and native seems to be sharpening into what it ultimately became um, is Pontiac's war and Mm -hmm. waged by Native Americans against settlers or or maybe can can you tell us uh, briefly why uh, this war was waged.
1: Briefly, I'm not sure, but I'll okay. try. Uh, or, or, uh, actually, actually, a lot of historians the before what... they call, this the war called Pontiacs. Okay. Why is that? So it didn't necessarily belong to him, right? And he yeah. was one of many local leaders. Uh, and there's also, you know, a long tradition, particularly in English colonial discourse, that always blames one particular bad Indian for any kind of war. This goes back to King Philip's War in New England, and you call it Pontiac's War, so you got one evil guy you can blame it on. Right. All right. Uh, so be that as it may. <laughs> um, Pontiac's War comes at a particular historical moment. It comes at the end of, in, in, uh, it comes in the mid 1760s at the end of what historians call the Seven Years' War, what most U.S. people call the French and Indian War. It was a period in which at least on paper, the British Empire had finally defeated both the French and the Spanish and claimed to control all of Eastern North America. It conquered Canada um, and um, also had imposed their rule on uh, what used to be Spanish Florida. And so at the end of the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, uh, the British army, the British governments and the settler colonists in British, uh, British uh, colonies uh, all thought they had finally won the great battle for the continent and that all of the continent belonged to them. Particularly the vast territories west of the Appalachian Mountains and east of the Mississippi River, right? Which is where Pontiac and the Anishinaabe people, uh, of course, they're, they're based in the upper um, Midwest in the Great Lakes region. But this is also something that affects Shawnees, Delaware's other people. Uh, the Miami, Miami people in the, in the Ohio Valley, Cherokees and others. In any event, it's at this particular moment when the British think they can now impose their will on Native people as opposed to having to negotiate with them with them as uh, important military partners in the struggle against the French and the Spanish uh, that the war called Pontiacs happens. And it happens uh, partly because the British try to just say, you Native people, you're conquered we're in charge now, which if there's a message to the war called Pontiacs, it's that, that ain't true. Right. Uh, But also there's a powerful religious and spiritual dimension to the war called Pontiacs because for years in the communities, particularly of uh, what is today, Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, okay. Um, spiritual leaders had been preaching new messages, okay? And at the core of those messages were, first off, there is something, we don't know exactly what word they used, but they began, this gets back to our initial conversation, they began thinking about a pan-Indian identity that all Native peoples maybe share more than they, and divides them, right? And that what they share is their common experience of what we would call English colonialism and their constant dispossession and their need to unite finally uh, in opposition to um, uh, the, the British colonial juggernaut, right? And that our, our differences among ourselves are less important than our common interest in, in um, uh, resisting European colonization, right? And this was not a new thing but certainly as on a kind of global scale because it, 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 this, this message has, been, has reached everywhere from the Gulf Coast up to the Great Lakes, right? And comes at, again, particularly at the moment when the British are uh, ratifying that message by saying, we're no longer going to engage in diplomacy with you people. You're now people we govern, right? Uh, but also part of that spiritual dimension was a kind of new religious teaching, which says that the, the master of life um, was very angry at Native people for giving in to the Europeans too much. In fact, for using and re- becoming too reliant on those European goods, right? Um, that, um, that uh, in, in fact, the reason Native people are in the mess they're in is not only were they spending too much time fighting with each other, but that they'd um, given in to the sin of materialism they become too dependent on imported goods they become too dependent on imported firearms they become too dependent on all these things and that what the master of life wanted them to do was purge themselves of all these things and indeed purge the continent of the british people who were at the at the root of all that uh that conflict right
0: yeah.
1: and Again, people differ. It was probably as much a ritual kind of thing, you know, engage in a ritual where you purify yourself and you give up all these European goods and you go back to wearing animal skins and all the rest. I don't think that Pontiac or even the religious prophets necessarily thought it was possible to defeat the British without using firearms, right. Or anything like that. But, but this kind of sense of spiritual purging of all these things, European, right. And getting back to a core native identity, which is uh, a native identity which again they're preaching probably for the first time all native people share as opposed to europeans
0: right yeah I, well mm-hmm. and th- that is one of the things about the the reaction <clears throat> to this war from the paxton boys where mm-hmm. as as you say they're uh preaching the novel idea that all native people were indians and that all euro americans are whites and that basically mm-hmm. one side has to destroy the other um that seems like a, a almost explicitly genocidal mission statement uh-huh. it did not
1: uh-huh. it, it is indeed
0: okay and, and was this the first point um when that became the mentality or i mean certainly there, there were kidnappings there were uh, you know enslavement of individual natives uh skirmishes etc before that um but was there ever a time before them when both Europeans and Native Americans were on the same page, at least in the sense of saying, okay, maybe we can live uh, somehow alongside each other?
1: Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, it's absolutely not the first time that either English settlers or their native neighbors uh, had those ideas. I think that you can point to um, the war in the Chesapeake area in 1622 when um, the native people attacked English settlements, killed several hundred people. And then this huge, what probably could best best be described as genocidal war ensues in which famously one European writer says our first work is the expulsion of the savages, which of course is, labeling these people in a particularly racist way, but also saying, you know, the main job is to get them all out of here, right? Um, a bit later in New England during the event called King Philip's War in the 1670s, uh, a lot of those colonists were saying much the same thing, right? Um, but I think what what is different, and, and, and in both of those cases, but particularly in King Philip's War, um, the, uh, the person we know as King Philip uh, his uh, sister-in-law, Widemu, uh, who was um, and uh, many other people are getting all the Native Americans of New England together in this opposition to the to the English. I think what is and, and that comes and goes. Right. And again, situationally, during times of warfare, in terms of crisis. But I think what makes. The situation different after the 1660s and well into the 19th century is the continental scale of this. Right. Yeah. Um, and the articulation on both sides uh, that were engaged really in a race war and the articulation by people like the Paxton boys who, um, they're famously opposed by Benjamin Franklin and by the government of Pennsylvania. Right. And in fact, they wind up not just massacring um, the um, Uh, native community of Conestoga, but then marching on Philadelphia to try to get the government to engage in their genocidal war, right? But this is coming on the eve of the U.S. Revolution. And in fact, um, as a historian named Patrick Spiro has recently pointed out, the Paxton boys are using the very same rhetoric that the people protesting the Stamp Act in Boston are using. Our government doesn't care about us. Uh, We are being uh, ignored in a lot of ways. We are the true subjects of the British crown because we understand the rights of white Americans, right? Um, And so this becomes, this feeds into uh, the rhetoric of the American Revolution, which becomes many things, but it is also very much a settler colonial war uh, to... um, uh purge the continent of native people and make it a place that um, that uh, our European settlers can uh, uh, can uh, occupy and uh, enjoy uh, without the uh, without the uh, native native encumbrance
0: um, So we're almost at an hour here um, so I, I wanted to ask you uh, before we go, as we're looking at this period of history, do you think, um we've, we've somewhat already addressed this in the previous question, but do you think that the fate of Native Americans was predetermined um, as soon as settlers started to arrive um, and, 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 you know, certainly if they had just wiped out every single European that came on shore, maybe it would have been a different story, but in, in realistic terms, um, do you think that there were moments that could have gone either way, um, where things could have been tweaked treaties could have been made stronger, uh, such that today we could be somehow living side by side.
1: Look, I think people always make choices in history. Nothing is preordained. Uh, some courses of action are more likely than others, but, um, in particular, if you look at the uh, the early century or two centuries or even three centuries of interactions between Native people and Europeans, there's all sorts of points where people make decisions at Crossroads. crossroad. And it's usually the, Europe, the Europeans and the British settler colonists who are making those decisions. Um, but, um, you know, uh, people, people make moral choices uh, and they... Uh, uh, They create that history. So I'm hesitant to say that it was necessarily had to turn out this way, right? Um, In hindsight, yes, that's probably true. But um, again, there were always paths not taken and paths that people could have taken uh, that they didn't. And um, in many cases, it comes down to greed, right? Right? European settlers just never seem to have enough land. And there's always Native people who are sitting on land that they want. Um, And I also point out that there are always European settler voices who say, wait a minute. People like Ben Franklin, who I don't want to romanticize this too much, right? I'm not saying that he was a great friend of Native people, but he does point out that you know, wait a minute, do we really need all that land, right? Um, Do we really? uh, And and so in many, again, I will just point out that um, um, I'm hesitant to say that history is preordained if only because that lets the historical actors off the hook, it makes it not their fault. I think it also sends a message that we today can't change anything either. It's all been predestined, right? Right. And I think that's not the message any of us should be hearing. Um, as we look at what's happening in Ukraine, as we look at the, at the uh, situation of indigenous people in the Americas today, as we look at the global um, environmental crisis and all the rest, um, uh, I, I don't think as an historian it's a good thing for us to say no one could have made this turn out differently.
0: Well, uh, on that note, um, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Uh, the book is Facing East from Indian Country. Uh, is there anything else uh, that you want to uh, let people know where people can find you, if they want to check out more of your books, um, things of that nature?
1: Well, I don't want to seem like I'm shelling my books, but uh oh, is available everywhere you can, where books are sold. <laughs>
0: Excellent. All right, uh, Daniel. Thanks once again and uh, have a great weekend. Thank,
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Bye. All right. Bye bye. Thank you to Daniel Richter and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.